Our text this morning is found in Isaiah chapter 41, verses 8 through 16. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not, I will help you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, says the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I will make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel, you shall glory. Fear not, you worm, Jacob. I will help you, says the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. And the main point of that verse is that the people of God should not be a fearful people. The people of God ought not to be marked by an anxious, troubled, fretful heart about things that threaten our life or our happiness. Things like economic adversity or deteriorating health or hostile people or satanic opposition or guilt-laden consciences, or even death. The mark of God's people is not an incapacitating fear, but rather a contrite, courageous confidence in the Holy One of Israel. That's the main point of Isaiah 41.14. But there are two subordinate points which must be heard if that point is to be appropriated and appreciated for all it's worth. And the first is that God's people are in the condition of a worm. Fear not, you worm, Jacob. And the second is the source of fearlessness is the promise that God will help us. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. In other words, freedom from fretting does not come 
because we can persuade ourselves we are not in the condition of a worm, but because God in His unspeakable sovereign mercy engages all His forces on behalf of worms who take refuge in Him. Now that is an important message for our day. Really important. And I'll give you three reasons why I think it is very crucial to be heard. Number one, there are as many reasons in the 20th century, 1982, to fear as there were in the 8th century B.C. when this was written. Second, the secular and religious culture in which we live is working all day long, every day, to persuade us that we are not in the condition of a worm and that all of our problems stem from thinking that we are. And third, there aren't many segments in the church today where there are tears of joy being shed because of the unspeakable grace of God to sinners like us. Satan has masterminded a phenomenal victory in the American church by teaching us through a thousand lectures and articles and books that we are too valuable to be called worms and thus has made it impossible for us to sing amazing grace with any great sense of amazement. The more beautiful and valuable man is made to appear, the less amazing it is that God should die for him, love him and help him. The gospel of self-esteem is healing our wounds lightly. The wings of self-worth that carry us briefly out of fear are going to weary quickly, people, and drop us in despair someday. Because as John Newton said in that hymn, it was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. And where the glory of God's free and sovereign grace is paling, In the shadow of man's self-esteem, we can count on it. There will one day come a great shudder of fear. When the Holy One of Israel rouses himself to get glory over the nations in the vindication of his worm, Jacob. So the word of God to his people this morning is very relevant. Very needful at Bethlehem, throughout the Baptist General Conference, Bethel College and Seminary, and across this nation. Fear not, you worm, Jacob. I will help you.
called that into the newspaper today. The girl on the phone said, doesn't that sound a little funny? <laughs> God's ways are funny. So let's focus on these three points. Number one, God's people are in the condition of a worm. Number two, nevertheless, they dare not be gripped by fear and incapacitated with guilt. And three, for God, in His free, sovereign, unspeakable grace, engages Himself to work on behalf of worms who take refuge in Him. First, God's people are in the condition of a worm. What does God mean when He calls His servant, His chosen one, His beloved, you worm, Jacob? What is he saying? Well, there are two other places in the Old Testament where that word is used to refer to men. And one is Job 25, 4, where Bildad says to Job, How can man be righteous before God? How can he who is born of woman be clean? Behold, even the moon is not bright and the stars are not clean in his sight. How much less man who is a maggot? And the son of man who is a worm. Now, the least we can say from that text, since we don't know whether Job would agree with Bildad here or not, the least we can say is that one meaning of the term worm when used to describe man is unclean, unrighteous, unacceptable to a holy God. And the image is probably used because worms are not only dirty on the outside, they're full of dirt. They eat dirt. Now the other passage is Psalm 22, 6, where the psalmist cries out, I am a worm and no man, scorned by men and despised by the people. Now here... The, the focus is not on the condition of the worm, but the way worms are treated, scorned, and despised. Now, when we come to our own text here in Isaiah 41, 14, the evidence of the nearer and wider context is that both meanings are probably in view. The first one is surely, on the one hand, that Israel is presently being treated like a worm. They're in captivity in Babylon, as Isaiah foresees it. And they are being ground under the feet of their adversaries. And God says there's going to be a turn of affairs in verses 15 and 16, and he's going to make them a threshing sledge, and that worm, Jacob, is going to roll its enemies under its but on the other hand, if we ask why, why is Jacob in captivity in Babylon? Who sent Jacob there? The answer is, God gave Jacob into the hands of the smiter to be treated like a worm because Jacob acted like a worm. Isaiah 59, 1-8, listen to this litany of condemnation. 
Your iniquities have made a separation between you and God, and your sins have hid his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly, no one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas, they speak lies, they conceive mischief and bring forth iniquity. They hatch adder's eggs, they weave the spider's web. He who eats their eggs dies, and from one which is crushed a viper is hatched. What they make will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity. Deeds of violence are in their hands. Their feet run to evil. They make haste to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They have made their roads crooked. No one who goes in them knows peace. The reason God sent Israel into captivity to be scorned and despised like a worm is because Israel was a worm. When Isaiah saw the Holy One in chapter 6, he said, Woe is me! I am lost, for I dwell in... In the people who have unclean lips. The heart of Israel was corrupt to the core. Pride and arrogance and self-exaltation. The most religious people in all the world were an abomination in the eyes of God. And he cast them off into Babylon. And Isaiah warns them much earlier before it ever happened in chapter 2. Verse 11, the haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the pride of man shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day for the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and high, against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the high mountains and against all the lofty hills, against every high tower and against every fortified wall and against all the ships of Tarshish and against all the beautiful craft and the haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the pride of man shall be brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. But they didn't give heed to the warning because they were a worm who would exalt themselves and God cast them off into Babylon. Once you begin to see that God is God, it is He that made us. He alone is to be honored and exalted. His power is more to be magnified than 10 million spaceships Columbus. And all right and authority in the universe belongs to him. Once you begin to see that God is God, it becomes very hard to overstate the wickedness of the human heart in which there remains one peep of rebellion against the Almighty. It is not an exaggeration when God calls Israel a worm. It's an understatement. 
He was groping for words to describe the unimaginable enormity of the wickedness of the human heart. Now, what does that have to do with us today? The first thing I need to stress is that Israel is a lesson book for the nations. Paul said in Romans 11, 19, what was spoken by the law to those under the law was spoken that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world, including Minneapolis, might be held accountable before God. God has illustrated clearly with Israel what is true of everybody in the world ever since the fall of Adam. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none who has an excuse because God has made known to everybody in the world that he alone is to be thanked and glorified. And yet none of us, none of us has ever offered to God or does now offer to God the gratitude and admiration and affection and obedience which he is worthy of. The insult to God of our half-hearted, lukewarm, fickle allegiance is so great when measured against what the powerful, just, and merciful God deserves that the only thing that remains is a fearful prospect of judgment and a fire of fury. Brothers and sisters, if we felt a tiny fraction, if we felt a tiny fraction of how filthy and loathsome are our hearts before the Holy One of Israel, we could not begin to feel indignant when we are called a word. What then shall we say about our day in which the dominance of the gospel of self-esteem is so all-pervasive inside the church and out? The teaching that traces all of our problems back to the fundamental cause that we don't regard ourselves highly enough. What can you say to an American church in which, by and large, the ultimate sin is no longer failure to honor God, but failure to esteem oneself. Where self-abasement, not God-abasement, is the ultimate evil. And the cry of deliverance from evil is no longer, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me, but rather, worthy man that I am. Oh, that I could but see it better. What shall we say? Well, the first thing I would say is this. Jacob is a worm. And until God has completed the miraculous work of our sanctification and made us perfect, there will be still in us enough of our old corruption to keep us plenty poor in spirit. 
I do not dispute that Christ has paid for our redemption, that the Holy Spirit in unbelievable condescension has come into this carcass and begun to renew me. But what needs to be emphasized today is that this unimaginable, when this unimaginable condescension of grace and this utterly free and unmerited act of grace and mercy is performed by God, when that is taken and turned into a story in which the theme is my worthiness, that's a travesty of biblical revelation. And what's more, it is not a contradiction of the atonement. When I, a child of God, feel like a rotten worm when I sin against the God who died for me, I ask you, what should I feel? What adjective should I use to describe a heart that goes against the Christ who laid down his life for me? Sweet words? How should I regard my heart when I don't love mercy? When I'm not aflame with righteousness? When I take no delight in the word, have no compassion for the lost? When I resist prayer, harbor lustful thoughts, cherish the pride of men? What am I supposed to say about myself? Perhaps someone will say, call it forgiven, John. Call it forgiven. And I answer, I do. I do. Oh, God, I do. But listen, the forgiveness of God won't cause a ripple on the pool of my emotions until the corruption of my heart stinks. In my nose. That's why we don't weep with joy at grace. We don't stink. We don't think we're so bad. We've been told so many times we're good and worthy. And the grace of God lies unloved. What's missing in the gospel of self-esteem is a vivid and horrid portrayal of the corruption that remains in you and me. C.S. Lewis said, see if this doesn't sound true to you as it does to me, when a man is getting better, he understands more clearly the evil that is still in him. And when a man is getting worse, he understands his own badness less and less. And John Murray wrote, As long as sin remains, there must be consciousness of it, and thus conviction of our own sinfulness will constrain self-abhorrence, confession, and plea for forgiveness and cleansing. And I think they're absolutely right. Therefore, the only way that I know how to explain 
the ease with which Christians all through our conference and outside are swallowing the summons to self-esteem so easily, the only way I know how to explain that is that sin has ceased to be hideous. And sin has ceased to be hideous because God is no longer God. Instead of being the all-glorious, sovereign judge of history whose eyes are too pure that he could look on evil, he is a kind of vague, sentimental granddaddy who somehow is a means to my enhanced self-image. And When God is dethroned as the Holy One of Israel, the repugnance that we once felt at pride we now feel at being called a worm. Oh, that God might be God at Bethlehem. Now, does that mean that God aims for us to cower before him and lie incapacitated by guilt and depression and fear? The text answers that very clearly. And this is the second point. Fear not! You worm, Jacob. It does mean that we will be broken and contrite and that humility will be shot through everything we do. But it is not the enemy of joy and courage. Jonathan Edwards, in one of my favorite portions, wrote, All gracious affections that are a sweet odor to Christ and that fill the soul of a Christian with a heavenly sweetness and fragrancy are broken-hearted affections. A truly Christian love, either to God or men, is a humble, broken-hearted love. The desires of the saints, however earnest, are humble desires. Their hope is a humble hope. Their joy, even when it is unspeakable and full of glory, is a humble broken-hearted joy and leaves the Christian more poor in spirit, more like a little child, more disposed to a universal lowliness of behavior. To know that there is corruption left in the heart and to know that our feeble affections dishonor the God who loved us does not mean we will lie still wallowing in the mud of our guilt. It means that we will flee to Jesus, cling to the cross as the most precious thing in the world and take refuge like little chicks under the wings of our loving Heavenly Father. Oh, what a different picture that is than one who takes refuge in self-esteem. And there we gain courage to love, not because we regard ourselves highly, but because we regard grace highly and all-sufficient. Fear not, you worm, Jacob. And the final point is the reason why 
Worms don't have to fear. I will help you, says the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. The good news of the Bible is not that we are not worms. The good news of the Bible is that God helps worms who take refuge in Him. The greatest thing about being a a Christian pastor is that I do not offer steps to an improved self-image in my counseling. I offer God and grace unbeclouded by anything else. And the issue is always, will you trust him, worm Jacob? He is for you, if you will. The saddest thing about the gospel of self-esteem, which incidentally I thought might shrivel up and die, and is coming back with remarkable acts of publishing this year from notable people. The saddest thing about the gospel of self-esteem is that it makes so many things that were once big, little. It takes the gospel truths, which for centuries have stunned the saints into silence and held them enwrapped in awe at who God is and what He has done and brought them down and turned them into little psychological devices in the service of my puny self-image. I know that the Christians who promote the gospel of self-esteem say that underneath it all is the grace of God. I would ask, is it also the pinnacle? Is the grace of God what is exalted, lifted up? Is that what's left ringing in our ears when we're finished counseling? Or not? Does the gospel of self-esteem leave us exulting and glorying in the unspeakable riches of grace? Or does it leave us exulting that we have, alas, made the wonderful discovery that I am somebody... My prayer for Bethlehem in closing and my goal in preaching is that we might be a people unafraid to acknowledge that we are in a worm-like condition before the Holy One of Israel. And then second, a people who betake themselves fast to the cross hold it up and embrace it and kiss it and love grace. And third, because we have discovered a God of unimaginable grace, have no fear. Walk out of this church into every problem that faces us unafraid because God Almighty is at the side of His Word. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, says the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God and Heavenly Father, Holy One of Israel, 
full of grace and compassion to those who humble themselves at the cross. We love you. I love you, Jesus, for my forgiveness. I don't know what I'd say to May Christensen about self-esteem right now. She lies there. But I know what I say of the cross and of grace and of love to worms like us. Thank you that I have a message as a pastor. And may it resound forth from this church with unbelievable power. Oh, teach us how to put it all together for your great glory. Through Christ I pray.